Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Rick Rule. Uh, we romped through a variety of different uh, topics, mainly aimed at how can retail investors be better at what they do and have better outcomes. Uh, it opens up a little bit on what he's doing now in semi-retirement uh, and perhaps some of the things that he's looking forward to uh, doing, um, but mostly around investing, some great uh, thoughts and conversations in there as usual. And if you want more of that, you can find other commentators uh, commenting about investment strategies uh, and the macro thematics at our website, cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you'll also find a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other and applying some of these thoughts from people like Rick uh, on their projects. Uh, so do go and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. I think you'll really enjoy it. Rick Rule, how are you, sir? Life is, uh, life is nice and the better, frankly, for having our uh, a discussion with you after many false starts. I know we, we did try. I, th- I think I think we we ended up at two all, didn't we? Two all for the for the restart. We both had technical difficulties, yeah. which in our case is not hard to understand. Te- technophobes that we are, but anyway, we're here. We're one wonderful, and we're here. And you have you have set yourself up a rather resplendent backdrop there in your new home. Marvelous. You pr- you proud of this? Uh, my wife has done a spectacular job building this office. I joke it's the office I should have had when I was 26. The problem is I was broke when I was 26, and so this wasn't available. But in my declining years, it will serve me well. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about it. You, you mentioned this is your dream home. This is. is your dream home. How does one go about dry, designing a dream home? Do you have ideas from the age of 26 through to today, present day, and you know what? You know what would be good? And how does that, how does that dream evolve? Uh, in all honesty, uh, my wife has great design skills. She's been involved in this sort of thing for a long time. And of course, she knows the customers, her and I, quite well. Uh, so all credit is due her. Now, in fairness, when my opinion was required, I was informed as to what it was and allowed to repeat it faithfully. Uh, the consequence of that is that we have a house that was designed by a person and works uh, rather than a house designed by committee. You know the old joke, a camel was a horse designed by committee. In this particular case, uh, I had some broad policy inputs, but one person successfully implemented all of that, and that was her, not I. I, I but I like the way you described us our dream house. That's that's, that's quite charming. No, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I look forward to you coming here and seeing I do, seeing well, it someday. You know, one, one day, if, if I'm ever allowed to travel. I have, I have had my jab, though. That's the good mm-hmm. news. I've had the mm-hmm. first of my two jabs. Mm-hmm. Um, it absolutely floored me. And if it is one quarter of how you feel if you actually get COVID, I... I, I really, I mean, I'll stand front of line for my second jab for days because that, that I was pretty ill for 24 hours, I have to say. But there you go. Say la vie and enough of life. Hey, so when we talk, we always have a sort of little little theme going here. And I, and I wanted to make this uh, sort of light thing because I, I hear you are semi-retired, threatening to semi-retire, contemplating it in some way, shape or form. And it, it ha- are you, and is, how's that manifesting itself? Uh, I have resigned um, any managerial or supervisory role with Sprott, 
and also any regulated role was brought. So I've, uh, after God knows how many decades, as an example, given up my Series 7 stockbroker's license. I remain a member of the board of Sprott. Uh, I remain, I believe, their largest shareholder, and I believe their largest private client. But I'm not, listen, I'll, I'll say it easily. Uh, I've been very lucky in life. Uh, I have decided to do a lot less of things that are unpleasant for me. Being regulated is extremely unpleasant. Uh, and a lot more uh, of the things I enjoy, uh, which in my case are primarily, uh, on the one hand, securities analysis, uh, and on the other hand, communication, mentoring, things like this. Right. Well, that, that's kind of why we're here today, because I think we, we did a show a couple of shows ago, actually, where we talked about being Rick Rule, but sort of slightly tongue in cheek. But um, from that and the last shows where you kind of opened up a little bit about musical tastes, uh, and such like, um, people get it, you know, getting to know the real, real world was, it's been fascinating in terms of the questions and the thoughts coming in. It's, and it's quite clear. And I, I, there was a sort of very sort of charming thought. It was like, oh, I'd love to be Rick Rule, right? Which is kind of, it, it's a nice thing. It's also slightly worrying, I, I think, that they don't have confidence in their own abilities or, 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 or themselves. But um, it's, it's, it's quite a nice, it's quite a nice thought. But um, I was hoping maybe you could share with a, a little bit more about life's journey to this point because i'm sure it's not all been uh, a bed of roses and there's some been tough decisions and tough times as well and you know just be a little bit more um you know a, a sort of a dose of kind of realism about the world of investing and you know you know you know what people wish for is is uh, nice nice it seems like a nice simple easy thing to do but you got to work hard you got to work hard along the way don't you i mean that's that's part of the secret to this Part of my success has definitely uh, been <clears throat> that despite whatever faults I had, uh, I worked very hard. Now, in truth, if you describe work as a somewhat unpleasant task that you do to provide material comfort for yourself and your family, uh, I haven't done very much work at all. Uh, I've been absolutely fascinated with what I do. And, and I think part of the reason that I've been able to be so competitive is I was thinking less about the goal and more about enjoying the process. Uh, I said in an earlier interview, when I stopped worrying about making money and started worrying about generating utility for other people, immediately, within a quarter, I started making a lot of money. Uh, I have not for many, many, many years found work distasteful. There were certain aspects of work that I found distasteful. Uh, but the truth is I procrastinated with regards to most of them, <laughs> concentrated on that, which I found pleasant. Yeah, and, and that's very, that's lucky. Not many people can. I, I, I must say, I feel the same way. And, and, um, and I was saying before the show, you know, it was a kind of conversation. Part of this was a conversation with my father just before he, he passed away. And, he, you know, he, he worked extremely hard all his life, loved it. You know, his, his idea was downtime, was only working eight hours at the weekend on, on, mm -hmm. on Saturday and, and on Sunday. Um, but it meant that when he kind of got to that end part of his life, you know, he, he sort of said to me, kind of like on his deathbed, it was, it was, it was looking me in the face and just going, do you, do you know what? You know, we've created enough generational wealth here for several generations to be fine. And that's very nice and it's comforting. It's what I set out to do. But I wish I'd spent more time with the boys. You know, it's the, you know, I wish I'd spent more time you know, getting to getting to know you. So there's some things, like everyone's going to be different, but there are going to be some things that people wish they'd done more of. I mean, are there are there things that, I know you've enjoyed your work, but are there things that you wish you had done more of or had a chance to do? 
You know, I wish for the last 35 years uh, that uh, I, had, I had done more generalist reading. Uh, I have, uh, it's odd that as I've learned more and more about finance and more and more about extractive industries, I've become aware of how little I know. And the circumstance of that is that I've probably spent two or three hours a day uh, reading material that was related to knowledge acquisition involved with my uh, vocation. Uh, what I've started to do as of March 15th, uh, my official retirement date, was uh, allow myself, uh, or maybe the correct word so far is make myself, uh, spend two hours a day on generalist, re on generalist reading. Rereading the classics is an example. Uh, reading some of the books that meant a lot to me in my youth uh, that I didn't allow myself to revisit. And so I think that's very important. Uh, another thing that's important to me is uh, taking my wife on trips that don't necessarily involve a mind tour or investment conference. When we've come to London, as an example, it's always been wrapped around minds and money or something like that, which I've enjoyed, to be sure. Uh, but uh, London is a town that shouldn't necessarily require uh, a week of traipsing from bank to bank uh, and then to minds and money. Uh, I should enjoy and force myself to enjoy the aspects of London and sharing those with my wife that I haven't allowed myself to do for 40 years. But you, you talk about some of the things that you've gone to, you go to books, you talk about the classics, books that mm. you may have read, read as a youth, but th those are generalist knowledge in the, in the sense of, I can have a conversation with someone about this book. There's, there's no um, self-improvement per se, other than it's knowledge. I've got knowledge and I've reminded myself about the, the book, the narrative, the storytelling. Are you enjoying it or for what purpose? I am enjoying it. And in right. fact, in my teens, uh, I enjoyed them immensely. They made a big difference to me. And I was uh, impressed by the knowledge I got from them, but also by their craft as storytellers. Uh, theoretically, having been a storyteller myself now for five decades, uh, I would enjoy that uh, more now. It, there is a skill set, I think, involved in generalist reading. There's a different skill set involved in technical reading. I'm in shape to do technical reading. Uh, I don't have the same skills that I had when I was 15, 16, or 17 uh, with regards to generalist reading, but I, uh, I'm enjoying it enough that I'm sure that I'll reacquire those. I, I, I would say uh, that although I've really enjoyed my life, <clears throat> one criticism that I would have of myself was that I was and have been too applied. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Too applied. It's, it's and I've enjoyed every. I've enjoyed every second of it. Uh, right. But that's a different issue. But, but yeah. But you. I guess of the question. This question is probably going to be more relevant a couple of years down the line when you have retrained your brain rediscovered a vocabulary which you haven't been using because it's very analytical language that, uh, and process that you've been applying for those past few decades um, as to whether or not you could have enjoyed life with with both both those things happening in tandem or this this application of yours uh, is the reason for your success, this application to the, the science. Right. And I don't want to sound like I've had any complaints. Uh, no. You just asked a question, sort of a retrospective question. Uh, and if I had a fault, that would certainly be one of them. I have been <clears throat> in every circumstance uh, enormously lucky. Uh, 
that doesn't mean I haven't deserved some of the luck. I've been curious, uh, which is how people make discoveries. I've worked hard, which is how uh, people get lucky. And I've enjoyed what I've done, but it, it probably would have been smarter to have more balance. And certainly uh, a primary goal for me going forward is to have more balance. Yeah, I, I, like I'm not saying that. I don't think there's any right answers. I just, I just wonder, you know, as, as people kind of go through life, you know, are there moments of self-doubt or desire for change or self-improvement or, you know, or can they, you know, later on, it gets harder as you get older. I mean, I know I'm sort of stuck in my ways and in lots, lots of ways and, and change terrifies me, but um, are there any moments of, of, of regret that, uh, in there? There must've been like days or moments. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I <clears throat> look back at some very close friends that I didn't maintain the contact with that would have been pleasant. Uh, I have for 20 years wanted to interview uh, people who were important in the formation as an example of the mining business that we see today. I procrastinated. Uh, and now 70% of the people I'd like to interview are dead. Um, and I feel bad about that. There was a history to compile. Uh, I know this makes me seem focused again. <clears throat> and I had uh, personal relationships with many of the people who formed that history. And I would have liked to have had a body of work uh, documenting the human side as an example of the evolution of the Vancouver Stock Exchange and the exploration business. <clears throat> I had the opportunity to do that, but I was uh, too busy in the applied part of that business uh, and not as busy as I should have been uh, in terms of uh, creating a, a sort of a legacy body of work around that. Do you think that, obviously back then it was harder, the technology really didn't exist. The, the desire to do it didn't exist. It seems today everyone wants to record everything. But they, they, re, they record what they eat for lunch, it seems. Well, you know, in fairness, I was pretty good about taking tape recorders to management interviews uh, and having that available. I, I just didn't uh, apply the same discipline and technology to my avocation as I did to my vocation. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, anyway. Would that be for personal pleasure, putting that together? You're talking about something. To, do you think people would be interested in that? What could they learn from that? What, what do you hope they could learn from that? A lot. I mean, one thing I am going to do <clears throat> this year is uh, uh, interview uh, mining CEOs who have founded their own businesses and built, built billion-dollar businesses or multi-billion-dollar businesses <clears throat> and ask them what lessons they learned building the business that have made them better investors uh, and what skill sets might be transferable from them to other investors. In other words, if you will, applied biography. Uh, I did my first one six or seven weeks ago with uh, Tom Kaplan. Uh, and uh, at the risk of sounding very smug, it was a, a truly a good body of work. It was uh, amusing to me. Uh, but I also think uh, Tom's a very smart guy. He's a very good friend. Uh, he doesn't mind getting roughed up. It could be a real interview, not a fawning interview. But importantly, uh, Tom said things that I think a thinking investor and a thinking speculator uh, uh, would take to heart, uh, in addition to the fact that he's an interesting human being and his, his <clears throat> biography, pardon me, made it an interesting hour-long interview for someone who is, as I was 20 years ago, completely applied 
there was enough utility in the interview that uh, people could have abse- uh, 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 absorbed the biography. Uh, and I know that uh, I'll have the same experience uh, interviewing Pierre Lassonde uh, about building Franco Nevada, interviewing Randy Smallwood uh, about building uh, Wheaton Precious, uh, Mark Bristow. Uh, there are many people who are of my generation who have succeeded in building multi-billion dollar enterprises uh, from penny stocks. Uh, and I think that the, I think the, the, the stories they have to tell are fascinating, but the lessons that they have to teach investors about what they learned in the process of building those companies and how it's made them better investors uh, will represent an absolutely unique body of work. Beautiful. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing more of, of those. It, it, you may, while you were talking there, I was thinking with a friend of our family, you know, billionaire US guy, he's actually, he's actually started to, because he's made money in tech, he feels he knows a lot and he wants to share a lot with the mm-hmm. world. And he started, you know, getting involved in social media and stuff. And, you know, I had an extraordinary conversation with him a couple of months ago, just after Christmas, where he's saying, the billionaire was telling me, people don't need money. Money's not the answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the good news, Rick. Money's mm-hmm. not the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you know, more to life. And he kind of kind of got very uh, at one with himself because um, he didn't have, you know, he didn't have the, which I found difficult because I thought, you know, he doesn't have the financial concerns that most of the investors right. that we talk to on a daily basis, you know, is the mortgage getting paid? Can I afford my car payments? Am I going to be able to pay the food bills? You know, some normal conversations everyday folk have and perhaps people investing have a little bit more disposable cash and it's not quite in that position but you, you you get the point where you feel that people when they reach a certain stage in life feel that because they've made money in one area they can go and talk to and dictate how others should live the life in another area i mean is do you i know your early days here but are you expecting to see any of that so when you say these are action well i've forgotten the phrase but sort of actionable investing advice what are you expecting to get back from them that the layman like a you know a regular retail investor could truly use uh in other words what lessons do i expect to expect that the that, that the entrepreneur could teach that would be useful yeah the everyday um, guy not an entrepreneur people who are nervous perhaps we're never going to be an entrepreneur but want to invest and make some money secure their family's future uh, what I'm expecting to show is that uh, entrepreneurs who don't trade their stock, uh, who aren't looking to mark up 15 cent stock to a dollar and use the proceeds to build, build, buy a Lamborghini, but rather people who hold their stock for five years or six years or seven years, and as a consequence, take a 25 cent stock and sell it for $10, uh, are people who you should concentrate your efforts with. Uh, the longer term perspective, uh, you know, Tom Kaplan shared with me that it took him the better part of a decade to be an overnight success, uh, which I think is an important lesson. Uh, the contrarian uh, mantras that I put out, you buy assets in periods when other people are selling them and you sell assets in periods where other people are buying them. Most investors have a very different perspective. The uh, Price action to them justifies the narrative. 
which is to say a stock that's gone up by 300%, even if the affairs of the companies hasn't changed, isn't regarded arithmetically as being a third as attractive, but is rather three times as attractive. Uh, hopefully, uh, these discussions will help people in that regard. I enjoyed enormously in my discussion with Tom Kaplan, uh, his explaining to me how his PhD at Oxford in history made him a better investor. It taught him about cycles. It taught him about the, politic, the fact that politics and societies change. And you mustn't use a 20-year-old example uh, to guide what you're doing today. Uh, it, it was very interesting to me uh, how his education uh, gave him the ability uh, as a young grad student to go hustle George Soros and get a check. He convinced George Soros that as a consequence of his studies of history and the work that he had done more recently in the silver market, that he had the ability to, turn, to as, he, as he put it, see around corners. Uh, and he was able to convince George Soros that that was the truth. And if you think about a, a grad student, uh, an American grad student in London, as, as an example, being able to convince George Soros to write a $10 million check, uh, that was an interesting perspective. Uh, and I'm hoping that I will be able to both learn and impart more lessons like that now that I have the time to focus on it. We, we sort of do these weekly shows on our private investment platform uh, that we've got just to help sort of educate people. We, this morning we were mm -hmm. doing um, one was a, with a Deutsche Bank um, fund manager or ex-Deutsche Bank fund manager. And we were talking about some of the his heroes out there and, and, and you know, people who'd kind of, who've come up with their own strategies and, and people, you know, sign on to those strategies and uh, say, well, that, that's that's the one for me. And, we, and, we, and then we sort of looked also at some of these greats. He, over time, you know, evolved their strategies because they got smarter, right? Or completely at the end of their end at the end at the end of their investing life decided, well, actually, do you know what? I probably got it wrong, and if it hadn't been for this one outlier. Uh, investment of mine, which gave us a two hundred percent return. The, re the rest of the portfolio doesn't look so good. Yeah, do you know what I mean? There's, there's a kind so of you, you said luck I, is a big part of this. I, I resonate with every statement that you made. Uh, in fact, uh, every statement that you made. I, I'm an investor now. Uh, I'm a speculator too, but I'm an investor, <clears throat> and I normally in interviews like this uh, advocate uh, rational, cautious uh, techniques. I made the money. As a wild-ass speculator, uh, none of the things that I say to do, I did. I'm at a different point in life, and I understand in retrospect just how lucky I was in certain circumstances. Uh, and I think when I'm talking to people, the idea that I uh, inflame their speculative passions, which is to say throw kerosene on what is already a dangerous fire, uh, is the wrong thing to do. At the same time, I, I do recognize it's a little disingenuous of me because all of the money now that I now <clears throat> uh, invest rationally, I made uh, with wild speculation. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so that's what I mean. It's it, it's it, timing, <laughs> luck, yes. and mm -hmm. the odd time a hunch too. But we, like you, you know, we we have a set of rules by which we invest. They're very firm until they're mm -hmm. not. Which, which is 
you know, last March, I, we were sorry, last February, very, very firm. Last March came along. It's like, well, this might be the exception to the rule. And you, 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 I was, we were sort of not digging ourselves out or you know, pointing at ourselves, but it, it kind of it, it was a bit like that, where we were kind of disappointed in ourselves because we wanted to live and 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 be guided by these rules because it gives us comfort in when it, when times are tough. But when times get a little bit frothy, it's easy to change the rules. And it, this one, just this one time, and just this one time comes many, many times. And um, how how do you, how do you then sort of give advice to folks about investing whenever your rules are there to be broken? Well, I've gotten a lot better, frankly, uh, about learning to be brave when other people are afraid, and afraid when other people are brave. Uh, and I use that as my mantra in interviews. Now, the truth is that ninety percent of the people who watch the interview ignore that. Um, they aren't interested in that particularly. When silver's up big, they want to own silver, uh, not understanding that the increase in price makes it less rather than more uh, attractive. Uh, so in, in answer to your question directly, I just do the best I can. Uh, I have become much better in my own defense uh, at living my own mantra, uh, which is to say I've been in the business for so long that I don't just say that uh, bull markets are the authors of bear markets and bear markets are the authors of bull markets. When I find myself <clears throat> in a circumstance like this summer, when the junior market got too frothy, when I was making money on my mistakes, uh, I took the fact that there wasn't very much to buy as a signal to sell. Uh, so I I'm getting better at that uh, as a human being. I'm still not very good at imparting that information uh, as a communicator uh, because it's Education is affirmative. Uh, and if you uh, talk to an audience as big as yours uh, with a message that isn't affirmative, you lose the audience at the beginning of the discussion. Uh, so if, as an example, uh, your audience was very attracted to uranium and very attracted to silver, very attracted to speculation, I would need to introduce the subject of near-term caution with long-term optimism so that I gave them a reason to agree with me and made the pill less bitter to swallow. Uh, the narrative would go something like this. Uh, I believe that the uranium price needs to go to 55 or $60 a pound, or else the substance will be unavailable and lights will go off. That notwithstanding, in the near term, I believe that the junior uranium stocks are ahead of themselves rather than uh, you know, relative to the uranium price. So I'm urging near-term caution and long-term optimism. Do you understand what I'm saying as a communicator? You well, I, need yes, to I begin, a, you need to uh, in, introduce a topic that would be uncomfortable to your audience from an affirmative point of view. There's no point in hectoring or lecturing, although I do it all the time. Uh, you need to give people a way to agree with you and invite them into the conversation. And I, and I hope I'll get better at that as I do more of it. Um, okay. Like I, I, I know we kind of going to sprinkle this with sort of investing anecdotes and, and, and words, of, words of wisdom here. But I also am very subconscious of my father's words, which is like, you, you've got to enjoy the journey along the way. So some of the things you are, you keep telling us your age. I can't believe it. I can't believe you're that age, but your fit, fitness is a very important part of, I think, bettering yourself. 
And, and so this, some people may not like this segment and others will love it because we've got a whole section on healthcare on our club because men of a certain age, myself included here, need to just work a little bit harder, not because to keep the body in mind, but keep the mind um, you know, working and turning over and taking over. You obviously care a lot about that, Xboxer and all of that, but what are you, what are you doing these days? You know, mercifully, I live on a decent-sized piece of property in a rural surrounding, uh, and I love to hike. <clears throat> I even love to hike in the Pacific Northwest, where sometimes hiking feels like a swim. In other words, uh, you either hike in the rain or you don't hike. Uh, my wife was also kind enough to build a gym into the house, so I have no excuse for procrastination. Like, I don't want to drive. I don't want to park. I don't want to do those things. Uh, I have zero excuse. Uh, but I have personally found uh, that there is a Zen to working out hard. Uh, it puts you in the moment. And as you suggest, I would suggest, I would think that exercise is as much part of mental fitness, uh, releasing yourself from where you were mentally and psychologically as it is uh, physical fitness. I also uh, like to both eat and drink to excess. Uh, and if I wasn't good uh, about moving in my lifestyle, uh, I would fill the whole frame. Uh, and I've never been able to uh, discipline myself uh, with regards to as much restraint as I should show eating and drinking. Uh, so, you know, as an example, I have an elliptical trainer downstairs, down, downstairs. And if I, if I uh, put that in the right settings, uh, I can work off a thousand calories in an hour. Uh, which uh, increases my bourbon quota, which I like. Uh <laughs> that's what I do. I literally look at the calorie counter and go, that's another bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> so good, so good. Yin and yang, the, the mm. Chinese mysticism, let's go. Um, well, look, I, I, I see, I like this idea of mental agility. We talked about mentors earlier, right? And you, know, you have, and we have discussed in the past, uh, your mentoring, and I, I'd probably like to uh, as well in, in the investing context. But I think I'm looking at uh, people that help you with your sports. We have, you know, a tennis coach comes in and, and helps out with that. Well, my wife has a, a Pilates issue. And I just think that mental agility that comes along with exercise, movement, it's just, it just, I think it's very, very refreshing. And that's almost important to me as my mentors in business that I, you know, that I, my go to. A uh, uh, couple of guys that I that I talk to a lot is that it, it, would you subscribe to that or is the thing each to their own? No, as a matter of fact, I haven't utilized that uh, as much as I should. I have a, a very good personal trainer. He's <clears throat> locked on the other side of the Canadian border right now, uh, but occasionally uh, we access each other by Skype, uh, and I hope that I will be able to access uh, intellectual capital in fitness to the extent that I've been able, to some extent anyway, as I've been able to do uh, in finance and extractive industries. I'd like, uh, as an example, to learn more about uh, yoga and stretching, uh, something which I know little about, uh, but I certainly enjoy uh, when I do it. There are certain aspects of physical fitness that I had great mentors in and I was good at a long time ago, boxing would be an example, that are probably less appropriate <laughs> to my, you know, my lifestyle now. I don't think, you know, I, I suspect 
that my uh, better days in the ring were 50 years ago. Uh, I don't know, ask, ask Denzel Washington. He's a big advocate of boxing as a training <laughs> method. I, I think he, he loves it uh, for, for sure. You know, but yeah. I, I, I just, I kind of, I'm kind of subscribed to, I like you perhaps, you know, enjoyed my sports of yesteryear. <laughs> and it's, it's been a real sort of challenge trying to reignite the, the, the passion or interest or desire, quite frankly, to do it. But you need to set yourselves these little targets. But I'm, I'm, I love the fact that I can. And when we talk to club members about the different things that we are all engaged with, there's going to group of us on Peloton, for instance, and we, you know, just right. just trying to help each other kind of move move forward as part as part of a let's try and be better mm-hmm. people, you know, better investors, better people. And I just I just think that's that's a fantastic one. Um, actually, but I, but here's a, so that's a mentor. But I came across. I got a phone call last week, Rick. I got a phone call, and I've never heard of this kind of job before. This guy was offering me, he was a life coach, and he said, I said, oh, right, okay, what, what on earth does that mean? Don't, one, I don't know how you got my number, but that's, and it, all he does, all he, you'd have loved this. Maybe you'd have loved this in business. He said, I will phone you or text you two or three times a day to make sure that you're, pro- you're keeping your productivity levels up. That was his job. <laughs> He didn't do anything other than just chase after you and uh, demand that you uh, do the things that you said you were going to do. And I just, I just thought it was a lovely job to have created. I've never heard of that job. Uh, it sounds like the man identified a market and figured out how to address it. Um, I, I uh, uh, you know, I probably would have argued with him from time to time that the task that I was involved in was more interesting to me. Uh, than the one that he had assigned me or I had assigned myself, but that's splitting hairs. Uh, you know, it's interesting that he found a role for himself uh, uh, being somebody's daytimer, yeah. in effect. Um, Making a fortune. Absolute <laughs> fortune. Maybe not so dumb. I, I don't know. I, I, can't no, I, I, yeah. I, I got off the call. I'm like, that, that's pointless. But I, now I think about it. Hmm? He had like 150 clients. Anyway, getting distracted. Let's come back to your interviews with Mr. Kaplan and others, yeah. okay? Because I, I think a really important part of that, and I, I you know, thank you for doing it. It's got, I'm probably going to be truly remarkable, but is how do you deal with or how will those guys deal with, you know, the confirmation biases out there? So if you tell people what they want to hear, yeah, bravo, Rick. If you tell them things they don't want to hear, what happens? Well, I think my job uh, as an interview will make will be to make the interview as affirmative as I can. I mean, I understand the headline part of marketing. Uh, and if I'm doing a series uh, with people who made themselves billionaires, the subtext is if you do all this right, you can be a billionaire too. Uh, that's probably not wholly speaking true, uh, but you start off uh, in the affirmative. People are interested in subjects if you make the subject of interest and of use to them, if you make it about them. Uh, uh, And I think I have the skill set as an interviewer to do that. I also, through social media, uh, have the ability to reach people with 50 or 60,000 at a time. Uh, And what what that means, uh, very, very, very bluntly, uh, is if 40,000 people decide that they derive no benefit from it, uh, 10 to 20,000 will derive a benefit from it. And that's a very, very large number. Uh, my suspicion is that the entire body of work, which will be at least 12 interviews, uh, will be seen by 
200, 250,000 people. So if I assume that some aspects of my interview style are too stilted or too focused or something like that, uh, and that the interviews themselves uh, aren't of use to many of the 250,000 people that watch it, I suspect they will be very much of use to some others. Yeah. That's my hope. Well, that's, I guess that's, that's the nature of what we go through. So it's kind of, kind of numbers game. You can't, you won't be able to please all the people all the time, et cetera. But does it kind of frustrate you to, look, you've built up this wealth of knowledge about whichever commodity, whichever, whichever sectors that you, you, you're involved in at that, at that time and, and over the past decades. You, when you sort of see these sort of generalist commentators coming in, and I saw one by Charmouth the other day talking about Nick, the world of nickel. And his, the extent of his knowledge was, and I don't mean, it's not a criticism of him, it's just the fact that, you know, he's made money somewhere else, but he's coming in mm -hmm. and commentating on other people's uh, space without too much knowledge. But he's, you know, in this case, nickel, did you know that uh, a nickel mine flooded in Russia and therefore nickel is going to be a great demand? That, that, that was his, the sum mm -hmm. total of the knowledge of the battery revolution right there. But he gets like 2 million views. You just talk about 250,000 views. Right, but but someone like him can move the needle positively or negatively with some random comment. We've seen it. We've seen seen it with um, someone who's a little bit more closely aligned to Elon Musk. You know, he's he's, he's just cause and reason. You know, he's in there and he's buying it. But for these generalists who've made their money and knowledge elsewhere, commenting on your patch, as it were, is it interesting to you, frustrating, or is all news is good news? There's no bad, bad PR. Uh, I guess it's amusing to me. Uh, I mean, I need to disclaim, first of all, having worked in my field for a very long time in a very applied fashion, I've still made some enormous mistakes personally, um, probably larger than the generalist might make. Um, in terms of what I do, those people are useful in, first of all, that they expand the audience, uh, which is a very good thing. Uh, but also, uh, frankly, to the extent that they make uh, a mistake uh, and that mistake causes price action that I can identify as a mistake, um, they're useful for me. Uh, I remember many years ago being involved <clears throat> in a small oil and gas stock, and we uh, did some analysis that suggested that the stock was substantially underpriced. Uh, bought the stock, the stock went up, uh, and a very, very prominent technical analyst with a huge audience, when the stock had gone from a dollar to four, uh, thought that it had gone through some technical thing and was going to go uh, ad infinitum or, in fact, ad nauseum. Uh, we thought that the stock was at least fully priced at four. Uh, we thought it was attractively priced at one, but four is not one. Uh, and the fact that this generalist then took the stock from four to six was enormously useful to us. Um, maybe that's a cynical response uh, to a generalist mistake in my sector, but given that they're going to make the mistake anyway, I may as well profit from it if I'm able. I guess the third thing is uh, I honestly feel uh, an obligation uh, as a beneficiary of mentors and teachers early on to mentor and teach. Uh, in addition to the fact that I enjoy it, uh, I think that if I didn't do it, it would uh, discredit in my own mind the value of the lessons I learned and the obligation that I have both to my industry and to the mentors who, teach, who, who taught me. 
Um, yeah, I, I, so it's I, partly I just, a consumer good. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But but I've just but to come back to come back to these sort of generalists coming in because I, I do want to talk about Robin Hooders in, in, in a second. But you know, we were approached by a fund, uh, it's a large US fund. It's a, they're about whatever ten billion, I think, nine billion, I think it was, um, and they made a bet about five six years ago on gold because why, why wouldn't mm-hmm. you? It's mm-hmm. the the markets are mm-hmm. nuts. There's too much debt, and the governments are just printing money. Why wouldn't you? It makes sense. And they they went into a distressed asset of several hundred millions of of bucks. They knew nothing about mining. There's not a mining fund, just generous fund. Is just they do distressed, and they approached us to say, well, you know what, you know what's your view on this, and you know where do we go? And this is, and again, I'm not going to give too many clues away, but it's in a Mm -hmm. state in the U.S. which is not really known for being too mining friendly, and they don't have a, a permit yet, and they've got some. They've got some environmental issues associated with the project, and you could probably guess who it is. But um, you know, it's like, well, what do, what do we do now? And it's like we we really struggled with one. Why did they get in into that without a team of people who could actually deliver it technically? Mm-hmm. And two, with all of those issues around you know permitting, you know, being buying distressed is different from buying problematic. Because do you know what I mean? I just wonder. I do. Those generous do. do Perhaps go a bit early because they're confident because they've made a few billion bucks over here and they think they can take their. And I just to these guys, New York guys, very smart guys, very aggressive, uh, and very clear that you know they they are very cl- clever guys. They they told me they were, mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> so so I know. And it's crazy. So I was kind of smiling at. Well, you put yourself in position, you blasted this money, and you, you're going to try and spend your way out of it without the knowledge that perhaps you would come to and approach a project like this and certainly not in terms of the monetizing it so they don't seem keen to monetize it they seem keen to protect their reputation and i just thought those are the sorts of dumb things that generalists can do if you walk in something you don't know and a regular retail investor say don't do something that you don't understand but it happens that's an enormous question uh and i'm trying to break it down into segments uh, i i suspect that uh, i do know the asset that you're describing, uh, I suspect that some of the generalist skill sets would have been applicable, uh, which is to say, understanding the politics and the sociology uh, of that region, uh, of that state. Uh, and a generalist investor, if he or she applied the generalist skill sets, uh, they might have had a better outcome than, as an example, if I had uh, and, and focused on the technical aspects. Uh, one wonders with a $10 billion pool of capital uh, if they really truly care about 250 or $300 million. Uh, if it's worth, they're rolling up their sleeves and getting uh, involved in it. From the point of view of a retail investor, of course, the important thing to do is identify your mistakes and fix them, uh, which is to say losing 30% isn't uncommon. It's the price you pay to make four or 500%. But when you recognize that your premise for owning an asset is wrong, you need to sell the asset irrespective of price. Uh, A large investor that's looking to come off a $300 million position has a challenge that never confronts uh, the small speculator. So in that circumstance, the approach has to be different. You may recall uh, from your days on the street, uh, the concept of an owl stock, uh, which is a large position in an illiquid company, and you'll call your broker and you say, I'd like to sell. And your broker says, to who, to who? And I think (laughs) 
your institutional client uh, probably in terms of where they wish they were uh, have found themselves in an owl stock. Yeah. Or just be honest, write it down, get what you can, move on, mm -hmm. because there seems yep. to be a disproportionate amount of effort that they're about to exert and money to right. save face, and that seems inappropriate. But you're, you're right, for, for the regular investor, move on, move on, right. the next thing. Take, take the first loss. <laughs> take the first loss, because each time, it, you know, we, we did some sort of simple uh, diagram for, for investors this morning, we talked about, you know, a, a, a 10, you know, what, it, what, it, what the difference a 10% loss of position is versus a 50% loss versus a 90% loss. In terms of with a 90% loss, you're going to need to see whatever it is, there's a 900% increase in the yep. share price to recover 50%, it's going to right. be double, right? And so on, right? right? So work right. your way. So just stop and think for a moment. And so just staying on this kind of the, the thematic with regards to, you know, generalists coming in, we, we saw social media sort of really come to a fore with this, uh, with this whole GameStop scenario mm -hmm. you know, earlier in the year, a couple of months ago, um, which bizarrely made another comeback <laughs> after it fell away, it came right. back again, as I was saying. But, and are you going to say, you know, you've got to work out whether you can take advantage of those situations, whether you can game those situations. But the, but the reality was with with the, the average Robin Hooder has 240 bucks in their account. Mm -hmm. But it's not a lot of cash, but there's enough of them right. being moved emotionally by sent sentiments and all of those wonderful, wonderful things using data, using facts, using hearsay using call it what you want but it but it, it ain't science uh or numbers and it the, the momentum that sheer weight of volume just we saw what happened with game swap swap a stop we saw what was trying to happen with the silver squeeze component and you're seeing a bit more of that from people who individually don't know much don't want to do too much work either quite frankly don't have a lot of capital but boy the market took notice do you think we're in a world of heart and pain going forward? Is there going to be more of that? I, I think there will. And I think basically it's good. Uh, when I look at the mistakes that some young people have made speculating, uh, it feels horrific on the face of it. Uh, and then I think about the mistakes that I made when I was 18 or 19 speculating, and all of a sudden I put them into context. Uh, what I like about this whole circumstance is that um, <clears throat> First of all, knowledge is less important. Uh, you don't have to know as much as you used to because Google knows everything. Uh, you know, you have to know how to extract knowledge rather than store it, which is a very good thing. These kids have access to many more tools than you and I ever had, and they're good at accessing it. The thing that I like more is that um, paradigm and technique is ubiquitously distributed now. Uh, when you and I were coming up, uh, knowledge, if you will, technique, paradigm, was all top down. The government told you what to think. Academia told you what to think. The major news media told you what to think. Uh, and now there are uh, 10,000 points of light, not muzzle flashes, points of light, yourself included, uh, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, access to knowledge and uh, distributed discussions, distributed knowledge, I think are very useful. The process is going to be very messy, uh, and that's good too. Uh, markets actually work. Uh, this will, <clears throat> although many of the young Reddit users uh, will get spanked 
uh, as a consequence of the fact that the silver market is much larger uh, than the GameStop market was. Um, uh, making a mistake is a necessary part of becoming a good investor and speculator. And the fact that they only have $200 to lose is probably a good thing. Uh, but more importantly, this will create a much larger community uh, of involved speculators and investors. Some number of the, I don't know, 100,000 young people who got interested in the silver narrative will stay uh, and they'll learn more about silver. And five years from now or six years from now, some substantial number of them will be informed speculators. The process by which they gain the knowledge uh, will be painful, just like it was for you, and like it certainly was for I. That's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> it is. I, I guess. I guess the interesting um, components of this is the speed at which that happens now, because you can talk yep. about your 10,000 10, specs of of light, and mm -hmm. they're not all light. That's mm -hmm. my fault. Oh, you know, I think, and maybe I'm Agreed. being a little Agreed. bit protectionist Agreed. here, yeah. and going, well, how do yeah. you define and filter and sort through? I, I, I get all it. of I these. Get it. Yeah, right. You know, I, I rank a lot of portfolios, as you know. I've ranked 20-something yeah. thousand portfolios in the last 12 months. And it's distressing to see the predominance of heavily promoted narrative stocks. It's distressing to see high-quality people that have done high-quality technical work that don't have the communication skills, uh, have 10% of the market cap of... Nothing. No, I, <laughs> there are a couple companies that we're familiar with that have had a financial public relations budget, twelve-month budget in excess of twelve mil. Pardon me, in excess of a million dollars, with a property budget of two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars. So their total general administrative expenditure is probably eighty-five percent of capital raised. Uh, in other words, these aren't actually exploration companies; they're narrative companies. Uh, and they enjoy uh, $100 million plus market capitalizations when the actual on-street liquidation value of their assets is probably under $100,000. This is going to happen. The process is messy. It's unfortunate. Uh, some number of the people who get victimized and spanked by this uh, will stick around for the next cycle, and then they'll know how to do it. Uh, others... Um, I, I just wonder if it's better to get misinformation from each other or better to get misinformation from academia, the government, or the investment banks on high. My suspicion is that the former is more correctable than the latter, uh, that markets uh, are, are better than this sort of uh, top-down uh, information distribution system that you and I grew up with. Well, I, but I guess with, with, with the markets, there's a kind of metric to it. There's a system where you can judge how successful you've been. And mm -hmm. that's the money that's in your bank account at the end of the process. With the government, mm -hmm. I guess the same is true, but it, it happens over such a long period of time, you perhaps get a little bit hazy as to how they're screwing you <laughs> over the decades and you know, and how, you know, how inflationary um, their decision making is. I, I no, I, I get that, um, but, and it's awful. Don't. I've become a grumpy old man. It's your fault, Rick. It's your fault. Mm. I've start, I've started using some of your mantras around the house about uh, government. I was trying to send uh, some bottle of wine to a friend of mine in Australia, and the Australian government have three three bites of the cherry there, which added another forty percent to the price of the bottle of wine, which made it a ludicrous idea. For something where they've added 
no value, none whatsoever. Thank you. But anyway, that's uh, that's my moan of the day today. But but back but back on back on this um, large swathe of retail investors who are looking at these many points of light, trying to work out where to go. You know, and I know that CEOs that I speak to before and after I start filming know what bad looks like and what good looks like. They know who is good, who is real, which companies are real, which ones will make it. And and everyone's just sitting there just mute because it would be bad form to point at someone else and go, you're a promoter with ill intent. You haven't got a bad asset. We've seen that asset four times. It didn't work the last three times. It's not going to work. Do you know what I mean? So it's a... Is it the right thing to let people learn the hard way with their own cash? Is there a better way? Is there is it better form to have a different approach by the markets? Should the exchanges step up to the plate and do more? Should no right? You don't no. want the control. Let the markets. No, I listen. Resolve. I, I mean, that, that's the most pernicious circumstance where. Uh, investors and speculators uh, allow themselves to devolve responsibility for their success or failure to a bunch of bureaucrats. That's totally insane. Uh, I know many people that work for the SEC, and there are many fine people that work there. But what the SEC does is promulgate the false belief that they protect investors. You'll remember the alleged market failing, in truth, a regulatory failing of Enron. Uh, the consequence of the Enron failing is that we put in place Sarbanes-Oxley, which even Warren Buffett, a great fan of regulators, has said burdens the system with $100 billion a year in regulatory expense that wasn't there before. In other words, as taxpayers and shareholders, we have uh, instituted annually losses that are greater to the system that occurred as a consequence of the Enron fraud. And by the way, uh, before Sarbanes-Oxley, fraud was against the law. Remember, too, Bernie Madoff. Uh, Mr. Madoff is alleged to have stolen $28 billion uh, and existed uh, in that incarnation for 16 years. An audit of which he would have had to gone through eight by law at that point in time involves looking at the trade blotter and looking at the check register, calling third parties to make sure that the trades took place and that they got paid for. Uh, I mean, I could have busted them. Uh, particularly because in the entity in question, he didn't make a trade. The idea that somebody who didn't make a trade could be subjected to an audit where the trade blotter, the non-existent trade blotter, had to match with the non-existent check register. The idea that investors were somehow protected by these regulators who either didn't or didn't successfully uh, complete 16 audits, pardon me, eight audits over 16 years, exposes the greatest fraud of regulation, which is to say that the regulators protect you. The regulators create an aura of confidence and respect around the industry, which the industry does not deserve. I get it. I'm with you. The, but the answer, the answer? The answer is you. The right. answer is precisely you. You, Lobo Tigre, uh, people who don't do puff piece interviews, people who do real, real, real interviews. One of my dreams personally, and I'm going to do it now, uh, freed from regulatory constraints and freed from the reputational constraints that might be imposed on me by Sprott, 
is to do a, a live interview with a company that has a live private placement, which is to say Shark Tank for real, where four of us, including perhaps Brent Cook, uh, say to a company, uh, we're going to bring our audience in, all of our audiences. Uh, you have a live offering. We're going to dissect your offering. And at the end of the interview, uh, we're going to write checks or not. If you have the jam to do this, uh, we, you'll blow a $10 million financing out without having uh, to sully the hands of an investment banker. Uh, and if you don't, uh, any chance you might have of getting financed uh, will have been blown to smithereens in front of 50,000 of your closest friends. I, I think the market will like that. I think that there'll be drama to it. I think it'll be good entertainment uh, process. And I think that speculators who have a life, you know, do other things, will benefit from the lessons that they learn. Totally. We, we actually came up, we, we came up with that idea last year. We, we were going to do, do our version of that last year. We just didn't have, didn't have enough followers. But I haven't been through that process um, of thinking, and we got feedback. I think the market mm -hmm. will love it. We were told that that would be something that they would participate, live viewing, live investing, at the end of which, you know, me, you, people like us write a check. There you go. There's mm -hmm. your million bucks, your five million bucks, whatever the number mm -hmm. is that they're, they're they're looking for. That would be fantastic because there's there's nothing more honest than than that. I was actually mm -hmm. asked by Sia earlier today, okay, if you heard my story, would you invest? I said, absolutely not. Right. Not, not what he wanted to hear, but mm -hmm. you know very quickly, mm -hmm. having done a little bit of research before, whether you will or will not invest in a company. And I told him why, and that's fine. And so there are things he couldn't fix. It's not, it's not his fault. But um, I think you'll do fantastically with that. Just got to yeah. literally get your own shark tank going. And, and, and I think the real. audience, uh, I think the issuer audience will self-select. You yeah. know, if I say, listen, this is no puff piece. Okay. Yeah. This is two hours of the type of due diligence that you would expect from me. Yeah. Uh, except it's going to be live. It's going to be viewed by 50,000 of your closest friends. Brent yeah. Cook is going to do the geology. You know, I mean, yeah. there'll be three or four of us up here that are applied check writers. Uh, yeah. If this is of interest to you, it'll be useful to you. My suspect, my suspicion is that the fraudsters, never mind the lame, the halt, and the blind, will elect not to participate. And the companies that will elect to participate will have uh, a good chance of coming out the other end successful. It's not my, it's not my goal to sandbag anybody. It's my goal to make uh, the process as real as I can. It's going to be great. I think that you will get the number, you definitely get the views. Get the views. Mm -hmm. It'll be a question of, you know, because I, I need to, when I'm asking these questions of companies now, and in a very kind of, I think, quite light way, I have to be very careful to tread very carefully. Or these people just don't come back on, or other people don't want to come on mm -hmm. because of the way that it's spoken to you. So it's a, it's a very light balance you need to strike. Because, um, you know, I've run out of shows if I, if I did what I did when I was in banking. It was a bit yeah. brutal, right? Well, I'm going to err on the side of uh, brutal. Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, at 68 years of age, I'm less about building a gross network and more about building a net network. Uh, mm -hmm. And to the extent that issuers <clears throat> or an audience uh, isn't interested in what I'm interested in, then they can be somebody else's audience. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's I think it's I think it's a great thing to do. You know, you'd be a much better person than we we would have been. We've been writing small checks, so um, I think you'd be much much more fun to watch, much more at stake, and uh, like I say, nothing to lose. So.
Beautiful. I'm loving that idea. Have you got more ideas like this? You want to throw one throw one my way? Uh, well, you can participate in this. It's uh, it's not uh, it's not something that I should have a monopoly on. Uh, right. Everybody, uh, I think. Listen, though, you know, I I greatly enjoyed having you on my program at PDAC. Uh, oh, partly so because I think what what you and uh, Lobo Tigre do uh, in terms of interviewing companies, uh, yes, you're polite. Uh, I hope I'll be polite too, to be honest with you. Um, but the truth is that both of you ask real questions from the point of view of real investors. This is very different mm -hmm. than one of those websites that charges somebody $250,000 uh, and orchestrates a puff piece to $5 million. It's a very, very different process and it's very beneficial. So does that happen? That actually happens? Of course. Are those are the sorts of numbers? Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, the nice Stunned thing about uh, the nice thing about uh, uh, CEDAR, which is the Canadian equivalent of EDGAR, is all these things have to be filed. Uh, and so internally in Sprott, we have our own clipping service right. where we send things around that uh, stun even cynical old pros yeah. uh, like ourselves. Uh, do you still get those moments where you just, I can't believe people are still doing this? Daily. Really? Wow. Daily. Yeah. Well, what's it usually? Daily. Is it usually, is it usually, you know, salary or, you know, expense? I, I love that my favorite are the ones where a guy's got, he's got salary, a director's fee, consultancy fee, expenses, and they're dumb enough to lay those things out so you can work it out. That, that, that's, mm -hmm. that's the one that gets me. They're required to. Uh, and when you see a circumstance where, as an example, the CEO's total compensation uh, is, you know, a, a substantial part mm. of the total expenditure, mm. uh, it, it's, in, it's interesting to see. Uh, I think I told you this earlier. We had an intern some years ago. Uh, who pulled uh, 25 TSXV issuers at random right. uh, and discovered that the uh, 25 is not a representative sample, uh, but it's the best sample we've seen taken. Uh, the mean percentage, percentage of general administrative expenditures to total expenditures exceeded 65%, which is to say 35% went in the ground. If you and I were to propose an exploration program joint venture with a major mining company, they would allow us between 12 and 15% of total expenditures by way of direct and indirect GNA. Uh, but the mean of 25 issuers on the TSX fee exceeded 65%. And people wonder why it doesn't work. Do, do you know a sector which is worse? We, we've been like, we invest money in <laughs> this, this, this is true, is uh, is technology sector, the technology sector. We, we, we made a stack of money on technology back in the day, right? And we continue to look for investments and so forth. When you look at the numbers being applied there, but some of the VCs, these, I think mm -hmm. VC, venture capital sounds like such a small thing. Oh, I'll give you a little bit of money. These guys are dishing out tens, if not mm -hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. to, to projects which just don't make sense. They've been designed by people of our age, mm -hmm. you know, who know nothing about technology. And because they're very eloquent, kind of like your, 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 your student with George Soros, he's very eloquent in the delivery and all of the backup material as to why this will for sure work. Mm -hmm. They, there was, I, we were talking to a chap 
He was trying to get some money from us, and he had previously raised $400 million for a venture, which lasted 18 months. All the money was spent, you'd be glad to hear. No waste. <laughs> they spent it all. <laughs> um, and he was now going around looking for another 100 for another project. And this is his, this is his fourth go. Fourth go. So some, when I look in that, in that context, I, quite frankly, mining is, is, is um, rather, rather, rather tame. It's, it's embarrassing that as inefficient as we are in other areas, that we're also inefficient at wasting money compared to other sectors. It, exactly. One exactly. would have thought that we exceeded at something. See, I, I, I could do a lovely chart using that data from those two, two sectors. It'd be fine. It, it would all look, it would look normal and our investing would look much smarter. Well, look, Rick, I'm, look, I appreciate, appreciate your time today. I know you want to leave us with thoughts because I, I always ask you the questions and, it, and, and perhaps we did touch upon it earlier where, we're lucky we have a very, you know, intelligent, inquiring, curious audience who want to do the hard yards themselves. But a lot of people who will be listening to this maybe don't, or they're maybe realizing that they've got through the past few weeks and months that it's maybe not for them and they want to maybe have some help. So you guys, the, the, you know, you guys do help people be a little bit smarter with how they allocate their money or some of their money. Um, and I know you, you kindly offer to rank people's uh, portfolios amongst mm-hmm. other things, but you've never kind of really talked about some of the products that you think might be appropriate for uh, for, for them out, out there as well. Some of these ETFs type type structures that you've got. And are you in Europe yet? Are you in Europe yet? Uh, yeah, we have we have a couple of usage funds. Increasingly, people in Europe have access through their phones to North American markets. Anyway, yeah. the truth is that we'd rather have a general discussion with people uh, as opposed necessarily to tout our wares. Mm. Uh, I, I'm very familiar with the products, but talking about products uh, in, in the context of somebody's portfolio suggests I know more about them than I normally do. The process that we like is if people think I have uh, value to add, uh, I do rank their portfolios. Uh, and if the intellectual capital that I have then given them convinces them that I'm a value, they can initiate a discussion with me. I can learn more about them and we can try to help them. Uh, that so, is easy. Right. That is easy to do. Uh, if you go to sprotusa.com forward slash rankings, enter your natural resource stocks, I'll rank them one to 10 and I'll comment on those stocks where I think my comments might have some value. Uh, I will, in the context of that, uh, pardon me, introduce you to a Sprott financial advisor. And to the extent that there are comments that I've made or something that are of interest, uh, just ask me the question via email and I'll do my best to answer it. Beautiful. Uh, Thank you. With the caveat that, again, uh, you know, I've graded over 20,000 portfolios in the last 12 months and there's no way I can answer all those questions. I've got got one. I want to ask you about your ranking, okay? Because there's a company which... I've got no shares. I've got no vested interest. Uh-huh. I'm not a. It's uh-huh. just a friend of mine uh, works there, and it's called Salazar Resources. Uh-huh. You have moved. Freddie Salazar. Freddie Salazar. Salazar. Great, really, yeah. really yeah. nice guy, right? So Freddie. He is Freddy, very smart guy. Smart guy and been around the block, and you know, knows yeah. that country inside. So that's uh, for people listening. That's that's uh, sort of copper gold um, mm-hmm. exploration story, but they've also got a, a, a JV uh, component, which kind of funds a lot of what they do. You, you've given that a four. For a small yeah, market correct. cap company, you've given it a four, and one being really good and 10 being not so good. So yes. Why, is that a normal thing? Why, why have you gone so hard on Ecuador as a destination? And why do you know Freddie? 
Well, four, four is a very high ranking for yeah. me. The yeah. highest rankings I have out right now are twos, and they've just been upgraded. Um, the prospect generator methodology is unpopular, uh, which means that prospect generators relative to other forms of exploration companies are undervalued. And I like things that are cheap. At the same time, they're undervalued. It's a su superior method of financing exploration, superior for two reasons. The probability of success on any individual project is low. The value in the company is the intellectual capital. And the idea that you issue a bunch of shares, diluting your interest in the intellectual capital to fund physical expenditures with a low probability of success um, denies the validity of arithmetic. Uh, the second thing is that with a prospect generator, um, your due diligence can be done for you, not by consultants, but rather by people who are earning in and writing checks. And the idea that BHP, Newcrest, uh, Rio Tinto are evaluating the work that Freddie does, while they may or may not be right, the fact that they're going to write a five or $10 million check based on the outcome tells me that I'm getting the information that they really, truly, and believe, you know, really, truly believe is true. And, uh, uh, I've often said that it isn't merely intellectual capital, but appropriate intellectual capital that makes junior mining companies work. What uh, Freddie Salazar has done is spent his whole life exploring for minerals in Ecuador. And what he's doing today is exploring for minerals in Ecuador. Uh, he's on a first name basis with a lot of those rock assemblages. And the idea that some engineer rather than geologist is going to come in by parachute uh, from Quebec speaking French uh, in Spanish-speaking Ecuador, understand the culture, understand the rock assemblages. That's stupid. Uh, Freddie has a durable competitive advantage. It may work to his benefit, it may not. But my life isn't about certainties, it's about probabilities. And I like the probabilities uh, associated with that. Is Ecuador a challenging place? Yes, absolutely, truly a challenging place. Is Freddie Salazar more likely to negotiate those challenges than somebody who just parachuted in from London or Perth? Uh, or Toronto? Yes. He's Ecuadorian, and he's been there mm -hmm. Correct. 20, 25 years. I think it was ex Newmont as well. I think he was... Uh, I, I forget which major, but... Yeah, yeah. I think it was Newmont for, for, as their, their chief geologist in-country. Um, well, okay, Salazar Resources. I just wondered why a, a small company caught your eye like that, and a four is a high score for you. So, yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I, and I like Freddie and his son. Freddie Jr. <laughs> I, I'm interested in the juxtaposition of risk to reward. Uh, yeah. So you can take away some of my upside if you take away a lot of my downside, mm. uh, which is precisely what prospect generation does. Mm. Uh, I'll leave you uh, in that regard with a very interesting statistic. I've, and these numbers are going to be imprecise uh, because I've been doing this for a long time, but I have participated in something like 65 public prospect generators in 45 years in the business. Okay. And the consequence of that is that I, I participated in 22 economic discoveries in a universe where one in 3,000 economic, or pardon me, one in 3,000 mineralized anomalies becomes economic. So I've enjoyed over a 30% success ratio where my expected rate success ratio was one in 3,000. I've participated thus far in 21 takeovers, which is to say, that roughly 30% of my starts generated a very, very, very positive outcome in a circumstance where you would expect in an optimal set of circumstances to be right, really right, one time in 20, 
Do you, do you think that there is a time, that there's a kind of cycle to prospect generating? Could they come popular and then unpopular? And because so, I was talking to someone the other day, he was a prospect generator and said, "Well, you know, this model was was popular back in the early two thousands, right?" He was trying to yeah. Say, I, I, I actually think I made it popular. Uh, I think I was noisy enough. Uh, I, I had watched it work, uh, and, and I went through the numbers uh, at large enough forums that it became popular. It's not popular among issuers because it's hard. Mm. Uh, what's better for issuers is monetizing mass stupidity. Uh, for sure. Uh, farming out, if you will, uh, on your own balance sheet to later dumber people. Uh, monetizing stupidity in a bull market is much easier than convincing BHP or Newcrest or Rio or somebody like that to farm in. Uh, and prospect generation isn't popular among the investment banks either because these people seldom have to issue stock, which means there's no fees involved. Yeah. The idea that a prospect generator would ever generate uh, a positive research report uh, when research basically have become you know, cheerleaders for investment banking and there's no fees we, is a non-starter. We did one on Salazar six, seven months ago. That's how much we like uh, the story. Of not, course, didn't, and, didn't pay us. We just, but you're not an investment it. banker. Yeah, no, which is really clever, right? Really clever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we better wrap it up because I'm conscious of your time again. But I'm going to leave you. Did you? We're seeing each other because Dave Cole from EMX mm -hmm. has asked that for some reason I don't know why. I don't know. He, he seems to find me mildly amusing. I suspect mm -hmm. uh, we're going to do an interview with you and David in the next couple of weeks, I think, and we're going to talk royalties. And he's and he's Great. at the earlier stage of royalties too. We've, we've just had a massive mm -hmm. royalty week, but we're two weeks of royalty. It's fascinating to me. I didn't know, it's fact, I, I knew very little. I didn't realize how little I knew. I, it felt like a simple concept. There, that is a, a world of, of people wearing different types of makeup. And I mm -hmm. think we can, we finally worked out um, what good and bad looks like. So I'm, I'm I'd be fascinated to see what you think in that conversation. Be fun. I'm very, I'm very fond of David. He good may guy. have told you I tried, I tried to hire him 20 something years ago. So oh, no, uh, I missed that. I've, missed I've that. known him very well and for a very long time. I was an investor in what is now EMX when it was Southern European exploration uh, before Davey. So I've known him for a very, very long time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, there's, there's a guy, if you want, if you want to clear the mind, get him to take you fishing. He can teach you to fish, and you may not think you'll enjoy it, but just the surrounding, because you like hiking, where mm -hmm. he'll take mm -hmm. you, you'll enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I it's look a, forward to it. It's a giddy. Well, Rick, Rick, I appreciate your time. It's Easter weekend. I know you're probably going to get a lot of work done as a result of it being Easter weekend. Mm -hmm. And not relax, but do try, uh, and I'll see you soon. I've enjoyed the process. I hope it wasn't, uh, how would you say, so self-absorbed that it loses your audience. But you were right last time. Occasionally I am, Rick. Occasionally I am. <laughs> Go have yourself some fun. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.